You're listening to Mysteries Still Unsolved, a podcast where we discuss unsolved mysteries both past and present. I'm your host, Rochelle. Today, we will discuss the case of the Zodiac Killer. Hello, and welcome back to Mystery Still Unsolved. We just wrapped up a two-week vacation from the podcast, and I can honestly say that I'm so excited to be back here with all of you today. Um, I did have a really great time, so thank you guys so much for being so understanding and allowing me to take a two-week break. Um, I have worked really hard and vigorously this past summer doing a lot of on-location podcasts and doing a lot of research, and I really just wanted to take the final two weeks of summer to spend time with my kids and my husband. So thank you so much for allowing me to do that and for being so understanding. Um, I'm so excited to be back here today, and to make it up to you, um, I'm going to be doing this podcast on a very big figure in serial killer history. Um, I also am going to be hosting, as promised, a birthday giveaway. If you didn't know, my birthday is this upcoming week. Woohoo! Um, and so for my birthday, all I want is more follows and more listens from all of you. So in my stories, I have a story that you can screenshot, share on your personal Instagram, post in your stories or on your feed. Be sure to tag me at Mystery Still Unsolved so that you will be entered to win, drumroll please, a package filled with some of my most favorite things. Um, so we kind of kind of touched on my shameless plugs, but I'll kind of reiterate them again. So if you're not already following me on Instagram, please do so. It's at Mystery Still Unsolved. I also have a website. It's www.mysterystillunsolved. There you can go and listen to every single podcast you can, episode you can binge watch. Um, and yeah, if you follow me on those two platforms, then you'll never miss a single episode. You'll be aware of like all of the happenings that's going on over here. So be sure to do that. Um, but yeah, thank you guys for celebrating my birthday with me. Appreciate it. Um, I was going to touch up on and up, do like some updates on old cases. Um, particularly the Alonzo Brooks case. I was really hoping um, that with his body being exhumed and all this like media pressure kind of like on the FBI's back that there would be some more information. Um, But so far, either they exhumed the body and they didn't find anything or they did find something and they're keeping it really close to the chest, which is equally as exciting because it means that they might be closer to indicting somebody. So I don't know. I'm really excited about the development of that case. Um, I just feel like ever since we covered that case in episode two, um, it's been heavy on my mind just because I feel like it truly is on the cusp of being solved. And I just think that that would be a great thing to see. I really hope that I'm able to see it in, you know, our lifetime. So Yeah, just keep your fingers crossed, send all your pixie dust, your fairy dust, all your positive vibes on that case because I would really love to one day come on here and give you guys an update and tell you that somebody's being charged with Alonzo Brooks' murder. 
Um, we haven't had an episode in a while, like I said before, and I know many of you wrote in, you guys DM'd me that uh, you were struggling. So like I said, as a special treat, we are going to be discussing a big one. An unsolved case that has baffled the nation for decades. A case that changed the happy-go-lucky vibes of the 60s to a nation more cautious, less trusting, and more tormented. Uh, This is one of the first cases that I really kind of delved into as a young girl, um, probably because there's just so much information about it. I actually remember going to my um, elementary school library and I would always go to like the paranormal, like scary section where everybody else was like going to go read about butterflies and stuff. And I found a book called The Zodiac. And I initially got it because at the time I was really obsessed with like astrology. um, And I thought that maybe that's what it would be about. So imagine my surprise when I opened it up and it was actually not about that. Um, but I still love true crime even back then. So I was like, oh, I thought this was about astrology. I thought it was going to be learning more about my Virgo traits, but no, um, it's about serial killing and I enjoy that topic of conversation as well. So, um, as you know, the media usually is the one to give serial killers their nicknames. Um, for example, there's the Green River Killer, the Mad Butcher, and the Night Stalker to name just a few. Nicknames for these serial killers are interesting um, in how they are developed, but even more intriguing is when the killer themselves come up with their nickname. Um, Some of the serial killers in history who have named themselves are the BTK killer, the Son of Sam. Um, They both came up with their nicknames by leaving letters that taunted both the media and the police. According to John Douglas, one of the founding fathers of criminal profiling, it makes sense that that some killers would want a hand in creating their name. Um, It's part of many serial killers' goals is to create their own legend and legacy. They want to be, well, not all of them, but many of them want to be a household name because the more people they can get afraid of them, like, the more excited they're going to be about it. Um, Basically, they want to control the narrative. Um, So the same goes for the killer that we're going to be discussing today, the Zodiac Killer. And the Zodiac Killer was a complete control freak. And I'm a control freak, so I kind of understand where he's coming from there. But, I mean, this guy could have written a book on, like, control and manipulation. This is the Zodiac speaking, is how he began his first three-page letter to the San Francisco Chronicle. From the very start of the Zodiac Killer's mayhem, he was demanding that the press, police, and the community addressed him in a certain way, in a way to get them to submit to him. The Zodiac Killer relished in the fact that he was successfully terrorizing a nation because the nation was watching and looking at his crimes unfold in horror. And that's just how he liked it. On December 20th, 1968, which is my dad's birthday, like to the year and everything, um, David Faraday and Betty Lou Jensen were out on a date. David Faraday was a 17-year-old senior who had recently moved to Vallejo, California from San Rafael. He was a member of school government, he was on the wrestling team, and he was even an Eagle Scout. Ooh, impressive, overachiever, okay. Um, His girlfriend, Betty Lou, was a 16-year-old junior at Hogan High School. Uh, She was an honor student, which is a prestige that I never belonged to because, I mean, I'm real smart, but I don't, I didn't like school. (laughs) Um, So it really does make sense why these two smarty pants would, like, 
click and get together. Betty Lou probably tried on multiple outfits and talked to her friends about the hot stud that she was dating, and David probably walked around his high school that day with an extra pep in his step and giving out high fives to anyone walking by. I mean, David had, of course, captured the attention of one of the sweetest, smartest, and prettiest girls at his school. Lucky him. According to friends, David picked up Betty Lou in his mom's car, classic, I mean, you're a teenager, so if you want to drive the nice car, it's probably not yours, it's going to be your mom's, um, at 8.30 p.m. They told Betty Lou's parents that they would be going to a Christmas concert and that they would be back around 11 o'clock. Mm-hmm. How these parents did not know that these kids were lying out of their butt, I will never know. We're like parents stupid in the 60s or did they really just not care like okay they said that they're going to a Christmas concert but I clearly they're not so whatever we don't care because a Christmas concert that gets out at 11 p.m that's literally the craziest thing that I've ever heard but I mean good on David and Betty Lou I mean they're really smart they were able to sell that story and it actually worked for them so I mean well done you have my applause I don't know if you guys know this, but I've dedicated my life to the vigorous research on the subject of horny lying teenagers. So due to my experience in common sense and deductive reasoning, it is shocking to no one other than possibly Betty Lou's parents that David and Betty Lou did not go to a Christmas concert. (laughs) I know. It's hard to believe. Shocker. No, the couple did not attend a late night Christmas concert. They instead visited a friend, stopped by a diner for a Coke, and headed over to Lake Herman Road for a bit of bum chicken wow wow. The area was a well-known lover's lane, kind of like Squaw Peak, if you're familiar with Utah County. Um, I don't know where teenagers go to make out where I live, but I should probably figure that out because I do have children. <laughs> um, I feel like every community, every city has a makeout spot. So if you don't know where yours is, you should probably figure it out. The two young loves parked on a gravel strip just off of the road. It was an isolated spot, so it was quite private, but there was a gas station within walking distance, so it wasn't terribly far away from, like, some sort of civilization. A mother on her way to pick up her own son at Lake Herman was the one who found David and Betty Lou's bodies. And just take a pause right here, but, like, can you imagine, like, a mom being like, oh my gosh, Sam hasn't come home. I'm so pissed at him. I'm going to go drive over to Lover's Lane and see if that little shit is over there. (laughs) And then you stumble across this, like, insane. Betty Lou had been shot five times in the back. She was found 30 feet away from the car, as it is believed that she had tried to run away from their attacker. Betty Lou hadn't made it very far before she succumbed to her injuries. When the two teenagers were found, David was actually still alive, but just barely. Based on the state of the crime scene, the police knew that this killer was organized and particular. This had been a planned killing. There were bullet holes on only one side of the car and even in the ceiling, so it was kind of like the killer was acting as a sheepdog and herding the two frightened teenagers to exit the vehicle out of a certain door, um probably because he didn't want them to like both run out in different directions and like scatter about and his plan worked 
In the police officer's official report of David and Betty Lou's deaths, it reads the following, quote, victim's activity at the time of offense interrupted necking, end quote. So yeah, I'm sure that their parents loved reading that report. Jeez, why are why is everybody all up in their business, okay? They're just trying to get a little bit of love in, okay? Leave them alone. Why does that have to be put on their permanent record? Okay, sometime after the murder, a 408-character cipher was delivered to three different local newspapers, the Vallejo Times-Herald, the San Francisco Chronicle, and the San Francisco Examiner. Later, a letter was sent. I'm going to read this letter to you. It's kind of sloppy because I'm literally reading the letter like in the guy's handwriting, and it says... Dear Editor, this is the murder of the two teenagers last Christmas at Lake Herman and the girl on the 4th of July near the golf course in Vallejo. To prove I killed them, I shall state some facts which only I and the police would know. The Christmas killing. But he spelled Christmas with two S's. Uh, Brand name of ammo, Super X. Ten shots were fired. The boy was on his back with his feet to the car. The girl was on her right side, feet to the west. Fourth of July killing. Girl was wearing patterned slacks. The boy was also shot in the knee. Brand name of ammo was Western. So, there you go. Six months later, this elusive killer struck again. I should pause here and tell you that many scholars do not believe that David and Betty Lou were the were the Zodiac Killer's first murders, and I'd have to say that I agree with them. This murder was far too organized and methodical, far too, like, eloquently planned to have been accomplished by someone who had, like, never killed anybody before. This is just the first one that we know with a surety that the Zodiac Killer committed, and it's also the first one that he admits to in his letters. Referring back to the letter, as you know, he also admitted to the murder of a young woman on July 4th. This woman was a 22-year-old, vibrant, petite, blonde woman named named Darlene Farron. Now, Darlene was married, and she had a baby girl at home, but, I mean, you can't tie Darlene down. She liked to keep her seductive talents sharpened, so she enjoyed spending time with multiple men. And you know what? Her husband didn't seem to mind, so it's their business. Darlene was spending time with a man named Mike Magoo that 4th of July night, no doubt creating some fireworks of their own. Well, it gets a bit confusing after that because there are several versions of what happens next at Blue Rock Springs Park. Some people believe that the two were on their way to see the fireworks when the Zodiac Killer began following them and kind of like corralled them into the parking lot. But Mike claims that after being picked up by Darlene far later than they had planned, they went to get something to eat at a local diner, but they never ate there because shortly after arriving, Darlene like kind of seemed spooked and she said that she needed to talk to Mike about something really important and private. So Mike had suggested that they go to the park where they were attacked shortly after they arrived. So... If your deductive reasoning muscle in your brain is getting a workout, then yes, you guessed it. Mike survived his attack. Again, the girl died and the man survived. When Mike and Darlene were found, the ignition of the car was off. However, the radio was still playing. It must have been an eerie scene for the police officers. Mike was, like we said, still alive. He was laying on his back to the ground. He'd been shot multiple times. 
He had blood all over his face. He was bleeding from his mouth and had been shot in his lower left leg. Even though Mike was in incredible pain and his future was basically unknown at this point, police begged him for information. They needed something to like help them find the killer. Mike wasn't able to give them very much, but he could give them a few things. He told them that it was a white male, young, heavy set. Um, he said that they that the man drove a brown car. The man had never said anything to them. He just came to the car, started shooting, kept shooting, and almost as if the killer was on a mission. Like he kind of said that like the whole exchange or the whole attack seemed very stoic and sterile. Darlene was still in the car, in the driver's seat. Her body was slumped with her head resting up against the window. She had been shot three times. Mike and Darlene were rushed to the ER. Mike sent directly to the ICU where nurses took off. Okay, take a seat because this is what Mike had on his body at the time of the attack. He had on three pairs of pants, one t-shirt, three sweaters, and one long-sleeved button-down shirt. Now, as you can imagine, this really confused medical personnel and the police, but upon further investigation, it turns out Mike was just really, really super self-conscious and insecure about his small frame, so he would wear multiple layers of clothing to make himself appear larger, and, like, this is something that, like, kind of like everybody knew but pretended not to know that he did this. So it wasn't like this was like the only night that he ever did this. Um, But I do wonder if the multiple layers of clothing on this night in particular, I mean, could it have had anything to do with the fact that he survived this brutal attack? I don't know. That would be an interesting thing to research. Darlene was unfortunately dead upon arrival and nothing could be done for her. Mike would later tell the police that as silently and quickly as the murder had begun shooting at them, he just as calmly walked to his car and drove away. Like, the the killer didn't even seem to be in a rush. Like, this person believes he just murdered two people in cold blood, and he left the scene like someone about to go on a Sunday drive through the country. But this creep wasn't done having his fun. He drove to a payphone and reported the crime to the police himself. He said, quote, I want to report a double murder. The caller then said where the police could find the kids in a brown car that he had shot. He ended with, uh, I also killed those kids last year. Goodbye. According to the 911 dispatcher, Nancy Slover's report, the caller sounded like he was reading or had practiced what he was going to say. Her report stated, quote, spoke in an uneven, consistent voice, rather soft but forceful. Nancy finished by saying, subject's voice was mature. The only real change in the voice was when he said goodbye. So the words when he was like saying them, just kind of didn't flow naturally. So that's kind of why they felt like it was a script. So this murder gave the Zodiac Killer more confidence, which is probably the last thing in the world this guy needed. But after getting away with a double murder and almost another, he wanted to take it up a notch. This brings us to that letter I read earlier and the cipher. Now, even if you think you know this case backwards and forwards, you might think you know who broke the cipher. 
you know, it's common knowledge that a former Orlando school teacher broke the code. But if you think he did it alone, you would be wrong. His wife, Betty, that's B-E-T-T-Y-E, Betty, for those of you in the back, um, who was only mentioned in the article as Donald's wife, she was actually the one who found the crucial clues that were imperative to solving the puzzle. But it was the 60s, and as we all know, it was very uncommon for women with our tiny figures and brains to be able to hold enough knowledge in our tiny little heads to contribute anything of worth to the world. So they gave Donald all the credit because as we all know, the only puzzle a woman should ever be working on is, of course, what we will all be having for dinner tonight. Gag. Okay, anyway, rant over. That just pissed me off when I read that. Even though FBI agents and scholars from all over the world had been trying to decode the cipher, it was Betty who realized that a serial killer would, no doubt, use the words kill and killing more times than any other word in the puzzle. So that got her searching for repetitions in the letter with the symbols. Then she assumed, due to the killer's narcissistic tendencies, that he would start his letter with the word I. Betty and her husband Donald, mostly Betty, used those clues to unlock other letters in the cipher and words throughout the puzzle, and wouldn't you know, the puzzle was decoded in less than a week. In the words of Jillian Pensavalli from one of my favorite podcasts of all times, True Crime Obsessed, let the women do the work. The first of many ciphers that would be sent read, so this is basically what Betty and Kinda Donald worked on together. They decoded this message. It says, quote, I like killing people because it is so much fun. It is more fun than killing wild game in the forest. But he put two R's in forest. Because man is the most dangerous animal of all to kill something. Gives me the most thrilling experience. It is even better than getting your rocks off with a girl. Hmm. The best part of it is that when I die, I will be reborn in paradise, but he spelled paradise P-A-R-A-D-I-C-E, and they have killed will become my slaves. I will not give you my name because you will try to slow down or atop my collecting of slaves for the afterlife. Even this wasn't fully decoded, though, because after that message that Betty and her husband discovered, there is a line of letters that basically reads, I'll tell you, it says E-B-E-O space R-I-E-T space E-M-E-T-H space H-P-I-T-I. What the hell does that mean? (laughs) We still don't know today. Until this point, there is no real connection between the victims. Without the help of the killer himself, police probably never would have even made the connection. So why did he tell them? These letters, and especially the cipher, made this case so unique that it accomplished exactly what the Zodiac wanted to accomplish. It made him a household name and brought a nation to its knees in fear. But the Zodiac killer wasn't finished. No, no, no! 
Not even close. And this next killing, the one this is the one that would solidify his name in the non-existent creepy serial killer hall of fame. It was Saturday, September 27, 1969, and Cecilia Ann Shepard and Brian Hartnell just wanted to have a picnic. It was a lovely day for it, September 27th. Not too hot and not too cold. All you needed was a light jacket. Name that movie! (laughs) Cecilia and Brian had dated in high school but had been accepted to different colleges, so they had kind of drifted apart. But Cecilia was in town visiting Brian's stopping grounds, and when the two saw each other, all of those feelings began stirring within them again. They had planned to visit San Francisco, but had just gotten too late. Um, But that was okay because Brian knew this romantic little spot called Lake Berryessa. The scene was romantically picturesque, almost something out of a book. Two lost loves reunite and rekindle a forgotten flame. They talked about old times and caught up on new times. Cecilia rested her head on Brian's shoulder, and it just felt like home. But then, Brian heard a sound. Almost like leaves rustling or maybe grass. Then Cecilia saw a figure in the distance. The figure disappeared behind a tree, and when it came back into sight, Cecilia grabbed Brian's arm and yelled, Oh my gosh, he has a gun. The figure was dressed all in black. One thing that really struck Brian was like the symbol that had been like paneled into the outfit. The symbol could be recognized across the nation, but for whatever reason, Brian and Cecilia had no idea what it meant. The symbol was a circle with a cross in the middle, with the cross extending outside of the circle, which, as we all know, is a sign of the Zodiac Killer. That's how he would sign all of his letters. He assumed, Brian assumed, that the man had planned to rob them. So he kind of was using that frame of mind to approach the situation. The best account of that we have of what happened next comes from Brian, who was still heavily sedated in the Queen of the Valley Hospital. Brian told the mysterious man that he didn't have any money. I only have 50 cents, but anything that you want, if we can help in any way, we'll do it. Just please, like, let us go. The man refused and told him that he was on the run from prison. The man instructed Cecilia to tie Brian up. Then the man hogtied Cecilia and Brian, stringing ropes between their ankles and wrists, positioning them with their stomachs down on the ground. Brian was worried that they'd freeze to death if the robber robbed them and then just, like, left them there. But the man didn't leave them there to freeze. Instead, he stabbed them both repeatedly. Then he left. Brian knew that they were too far away from the road for anyone to find them, so he managed to drag himself over to Cecilia, gave her a kiss, and told him, I'm going to go, and told her, I'm going to go get help. He crawled up the road where he finally found help. Brian survived, but again, Cecilia did not. So, okay, so far we have three attempted double murders, but in all three cases, The women have died and the men have survived. This makes me think, and like, I'm just using like my limited psychology behavioral science bachelor's degree. (laughs) I never made it past that. Um, That the main 
target, the intended target, was the women. Because he was obviously being much more brutal and much more thorough with the women. And that's why they all died. And the men were fine. That's just my two cents. That's just kind of what I think. Okay. Written on Brian's car were the words, Vallejo, 122068, and September 27th, 69, 6.30, by knife. Then, just to be sure, I mean, the Zodiac wants to make sure he's getting credit for these disgusting, dirty deeds. He went to a local payphone and called police and told them exactly where he could, they, they could find the Slade couple. And that's how help was able to get to Brian so quickly. Brian's recollection of the events led to the infamous sketch of the Zodiac Killer. And this is the sketch where he's wearing the hood with like the super creepy eyes. The final murder that would be linked to the Zodiac, although not known at the time, was just around the corner. His reign of terror would soon end, but not the mystery of his identity. And this time, this final killing, it wouldn't make much sense to those following the Zodiac Killer's like movements and patterns because this time he completely broke pattern. On October 11th, 1969, the Zodiac Killer murdered 29-year-old cab driver Paul Stein. And Paul wasn't a couple canoodling in the park. And it wasn't the long, drawn-out, anxiety-inducing, brutal slaying using a knife. No. No costumes, no theatrics, just a single gunshot to the back of the head to a man who was just like trying to make a living. At 9.55 p.m., Paul Stein picked up a man. He didn't know it was the Zodiac Killer. Stein drove to the address that the passenger wanted him to go to, the corner of Washington and Cherry. Paul Stein stopped the car and was promptly shot. The Zodiac Killer took Paul's wallet, keys, and a piece of uh, Paul's shirt before disappearing forever. The final murder, in all of its disorganization, would not have even been attributed to the Zodiac Killer had he not mailed in the piece of the bloody shirt with another ciphered letter that threatened to shoot a bus full of schoolchildren. Some witnesses claimed that they saw the man who shot Paul. They said a man calmly exited the vehicle, wiped down the inside of the car, and simply walked away. They described the man as a white male, ages 35 to 45, height 5'10", 190 pounds, with strawberry blonde hair in a crew cut. You can't trust us gingers, I'm telling you, we have no soul. Anyways... They said that he wore glasses and had a paunchy stomach. And I assumed that paunchy meant fat, but I did like Google it. And basically it just means he has like a round pot belly. So kind of a burn. Um, There is, I use this book um, to kind of guide me in the episode today. And they, Chena Roth is the author of the book. And they go into some really, really good psychology in the case. And I was, like, trying to figure out how I was going to summarize it. But honestly, they just do it a lot better. So I'm just going to read directly from the book. So, Chena writes, 
quote, From these witnesses' descriptions, a sketch of the Zodiac unmasked was created, and since then, people have used it to claim everyone from their own dad to Senator Ted Cruz as the Zodiac. But let's stick with the description for a minute. It makes sense. Paunchy, glasses, wearing baggy clothes. The Zodiac sounds like any background loser in a movie. Maybe that's where his psychosis stems from. Maybe this guy had been a reject his entire life. Socially awkward, with no real control over anything that happened to him, especially over how people viewed him and interacted with him. And while we're engaging in amateur-level psychology, doesn't it make sense that someone with no control over his personal environment and physical presentation would be so controlling over his murders? That someone who craved attention his whole life because he didn't get it in the normal world would then play cat-and-mouse games with police and reporters. He never had control until he started killing. That's when the Zodiac was able to exert the most control he'd ever had in his entire life, not just over his victims, but also over the public and over the press. So I just thought that was really interesting, and I totally could not agree more with Chena's analysis. Um, but you guys let me know what you think. Not long after the Zodiac stopped killing, well, at least in the Bay Area, who knows what he went to do somewhere else. Using the sketch that was given by witnesses after Paul's untimely death, everyone and their dog began to claim that their relative was the infamous serial killer, just like Chena said. Many of them just did it for attention, but there were others who truly believed it a thousand percent, and Gary Stewart from Baton Rouge is one of those people. Gary is convinced that his father is the Zodiac Killer. Um, he kind of comes to this conclusion because his mother was murdered shortly before the Zodiac Killer began his spree by his father. And he never saw his father again, obviously, after he murdered his mother. Um, and his father sort of resembles the composite sketch of the Zodiac Killer. Gary has attempted to use some pretty loose science to plead his case, including DNA evidence off of the stamp mailed in by the Zodiac Killer, which only partially matched. In a way that saliva could par partially match anyone on the planet. Like, if they compared my saliva to the Zodiac Killer's saliva, we would have some markers that are similar, but there were, like, no unique markers that both of them shared. It was just, like, the basic recipe for spit. <laughs> Does that make sense? So um, there was also a time when Gary sent in a partial fingerprint um, to see if it would match a fingerprint that was found on the Zodiac letter, but turns out it was debunked because Gary had sent in two fingerprints that were basically exactly the same, claiming that one was the Zodiac Killers, but it wasn't. It was his the entire time. So Stuart had faked that. There is a man that most people, well, besides Gary, believe could be the Zodiac Killer. And this man is Arthur Lee Allen. Um, so if you watch the Zodiac movie, then you would know that that's kind of how they, that's kind of like who they were pointing it at in the movie, if that makes sense. So Arthur Lee Allen was a former Vallejo school teacher, which may explain his connection to like local teenagers. Arthur is the only person to ever be served a search warrant in relation to the Zodiac Killer's case. Arthur remains the prime suspect even after his death in 1992. 
While there is a lack of forensic evidence proving Arthur as the killer, there is a lot of circumstantial evidence. He is one out of nine people who signed in to Berryessa Park on the day of the picnic stabbing. Arthur also once bragged to a former co-worker at school um, that he was going to kill some couples, send letters to the press, and call himself the Zodiac. And this is before any of the killings reportedly happened. Well, okay then. Seems like the case is solved, folks. Just kidding. You need more than that, unfortunately, because... I mean, you just never know. Like, what if some other guy had overheard Arthur Lee Allen's conversation with a coworker and then stolen Arthur's idea to kind of use Arthur as a scapegoat? But it should be noted that Arthur lived down the street from the pancake house where Darlene worked and had supposedly tried to take her on a date, but Darlene kept, you know, rejecting his advances. Also, Mike Magoo did identify Allen in a lineup of photographs as the shooter in 1991. With the recent resolve in the Golden State Killer case, many were hopeful that by using DNA advancements, we would finally be able to resolve the mystery of the identity of the Zodiac Killer. But so far, no luck. There was even a time when a really famous show aired a live interview with a supposed Zodiac killer, but the call was later traced back to a mental hospital. The patient was a man who had been hospitalized way before the first killing. John Douglas, the founder of, one of the founders of Criminal Profiling, says there are several reasons why the Zodiac killer would have stopped killing. First off, he says that the Zodiac killer is all about control. On the night of the Paul Stein murder, He allowed several witnesses to see him, which might have spooked him. Then later, Arthur Lee Allen, this is who John Douglas thinks is the the Zodiac Killer, Arthur Lee Allen was stopped by two police officers, but then he was let go because at first it was believed Paul had been shot by a black man. So can you imagine you're a police officer, you're trying to secure the scene, you see this like white ginger guy coming up and you're like, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, we need to talk to you. Um, Did you have anything to do with this? Blah, 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 blah. And then they like get like a walkie-talkie from some guy and they're like, oh, by the way, the killer's black. And they're like, well, this guy's like the farthest thing from black. He's like basically see-through with red hair. So they like let him go. And then a little while later, they're like, oh, crap, he wasn't black after all. Just kidding. Like, you guys let him go. (laughs) So frustrating. Anyway, Serial killers stop their work for many reasons. Some are arrested on other charges and a connection is never made between them and the kills. Sometimes they're released and they kill again, maybe in the same way, but oftentimes a different way as to not rouse suspicion. Some of the killers die in prison, either from old age or they commit suicide because they can no longer do what they crave to do, which is kill others. And some either die due to lack of media attention or simply because they experience serial killer burnout, which is the thing I did not even know existed. Um, Some of them stop killing on their own volition because they just don't really get the same high from it anymore. It's impossible to know why the Zodiac killer stopped killing, but we do know that he 
did keep trying to maintain the spotlight because every once in a while, the Zodiac killer would send letters to the media and the police claiming that he had killed more people. But they knew he was lying. The Zodiac killer um, claimed to have been behind a mother and baby tormenting and that actually might have some truth to it. So let's get into it. Apparently on March 20th, 1970, 22-year-old Kathleen Johns was driving with her baby daughter when she was convinced to pull over by a man who was also driving on the highway because he claimed her tire was loose. The man offered to tighten it for her, but in actuality, when she wasn't looking, he loosened it. So her tire was fine. This was all just a ruse. Kathleen drove away and her wheel fell off. The man offered to drive her and her daughter to a nearby gas station. Feeling as if she had no other choice, Kathleen agreed. She accepted his offer. Upon entering his car, however, she immediately regretted her decision. He started making like these vague threats against her, so she grabbed her daughter, held on tight, and tucked and rolled and jumped out of that car. She promptly saw a car that was approaching and she flagged it down and got into that car. Luckily, both she and the baby were unharmed. When the kind passerby took her to the nearest precinct, Kathleen saw the sketch of the Zodiac Killer hanging up on the wall and said, quote, that's him, that's the man, end quote. It's believed that this is the last time the Zodiac attempted anything. After a dry spell, he had attempted to harm, quote unquote, easy targets, like a mom and a baby, kind of an easy target in the grand scheme of things, like why didn't you go attack like a 300 pound biker dude? Do you know what I mean? Um, and he had learned that he no longer had the upper hand because he had failed. And he realized that he was not and could no longer be in control. So instead, he continued out his life writing letters, taking credit for murders that like he could not have even possibly done. In April 1978, Douglas read the final letter from the Zodiac Killer. He believes it was written as a suicide note. It reads, Dear Editor, this is the Zodiac speaking. I am back with you. Tell Herb Kane I am here. I have always been here. That city pig Tashi is good, but I am smarter and better. He will get tired, then leave me alone. I am waiting for a good movie about me. Hmm, who will play me? I am now in control of all things. Yours truly. And then the symbol of the Zodiac. The Zodiac was done. Either he killed himself or he knew he was going to die of something else. Chana Roth, the author of the book that I've been using called Cold Cases, says it perfectly when, Ch when Chana writes, whatever it was, this shell of a being who had terrorized a hunting ground of his own creation for so long was now too afraid to do anything besides blow smoke. And he knew it. At the end of it all, this control freak was a coward. And that's the case of the Zodiac Killer. There was also, if you've seen the movie, a reporter who became incredibly too close to the case, to the point where the Zodiac Killer would send letters directly to him and taunt him. And one of the notes even read as threatening in nature, and the police tried to convince him to get protection, but he denied it because... He's literally crazy, but yeah, this case got a lot of media attention and it's been turned into movies. There's been documentaries about it. There's books about it. There's references to it in like 
tons of TV shows. You can even get Zodiac Killer merchandise, which is a bit, in my personal opinion, but if you want to do it, go ahead. Do you. Do what makes you happy. Um, I just wanted to, before we say goodbye, bittersweet, um, I just want to repeat the information about the giveaway. So I'm hosting a birthday giveaway. Um, my birthday is this week and all you need to do is I'm going to post, uh, in my Instagram stories, I'm going to post like this little like advertisement thing. Um, if you take a screenshot of it and put it in your own stories or put it on your Instagram feed and tag me in it, you got to make sure you tag me in it. So I see it. Um, you will be entered to win a giveaway. Um, and the prize is that you will win a package from me of all of my favorite things. So make sure that you do that. I'm going to close the giveaway this upcoming Monday, and then I will make the announcement of who won in our next episode. The best way to support this podcast is obviously to follow me on Instagram at Mystery Still Unsolved. Um, you can also go to www.mysterystillunsolved.com. Um, that way you never miss a single episode and you stay up to date on all of our events and happenings that we're doing. Um, you can also share this podcast with your true crime loving friends and family members. And the best way to support this podcast would be to join me next week when together we'll discover, did someone ever place a useful tip? Has justice prevailed? Or is the mystery still unsolved? (laughs) 